Welcome back this evening to our study of the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven. Uh, we have looked at uh, a number of different, different issues related to the kingdom, and this evening uh, what I want to do uh, is to look at uh, what I'm calling the antithesis, and that is the contrast between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world. Now, I'm not talking about uh, the kingdom of heaven versus what we have called before uh, the common or the ordinary kingdom, which is God's kingdom in this, er in this world governed by the Noahic covenant, but it, rather I'm talking about uh, the distinction between the kingdom of heaven governed by Christ as our king versus earthly kingdoms, nations uh, governed by men as kings and monarchs and uh, various sorts of rulers. Uh, and then traveling on from here in the coming weeks, we'll begin to uh, learn some lessons from uh, how believers have lived in the world throughout various uh, times in biblical history, and then we will move on from there to discussing how we are to live in the current moment as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But I think it's important to, to get some of these distinctions clear before we do that. So I'm going to begin this evening with a couple of verses in John 18, but I'm going to jump all over the place as we go through this, so uh, I apologize for that. But this evening, look at, at John chapter 18. Uh, again, we've looked at this passage before. Jesus is on trial before his crucifixion. He's been taken to Pilate. Pilate is questioning him, and Pilate asks him in verse 33, uh, Pilate entered the praetorium again called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And so Pilate has in his mind, he's thinking about a national uh, geopolitical state there in Israel governing uh, the, this ethnic people group, uh, the Jews. And so that's what he's asking Jesus. Are you a king of this people in this time and place who is going to try and rise up against Caesar? That's what Pilate is asking Jesus answered him, verse 34, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus is a king. He has a kingdom, but he says his kingdom is not of this world. If it had been, his servants would have fought against the Jews so that he would not be turned over uh, to the Jews or to the Romans. But that's not what his kingdom is like. It's not the sort of kingdom uh, that he is the king of, at least not at this moment uh, in time. But he is a king of a kingdom. So if his kingdom is not of this world, uh, then it is different than the kingdoms that are of this world. So uh, what I want to explore uh, is some of those differences that we see in Scripture. And the first difference that we would note between uh, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world would be uh, the difference in their external splendor, right? Kingdoms of this world make a big show 
of power and of wealth and of uh, the royalty of the rulers. They, they go to extreme lengths with pageantry. I mean, even here in the United States, uh, anytime our president shows up somewhere, we have, uh, you know, hail to the chief plane. He's got secret service guarding him. Uh, they roll out the red carpet. In other countries that have monarchs, they go to even greater lengths of pageantry. We think about a king in England or various other countries. And this is one of the things that uh, the people of Israel were warned about uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8. They demanded a king. It says in 1 Samuel 8 verse 4, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So before this, they didn't have a king. They were governed directly by God through his prophets and through judges. But now they want a king like the rest of the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And so now Samuel is going to tell the people what it's going to be like to be like the kingdoms of this world, to have a, a man sitting on the throne as king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who asked him for a king, and he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen, and some will run before his chariots. So see, we see that, that pageantry of the king. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties, will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. You will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and the Lord will not hear you in that day. So they're receiving a warning that if they want to be like the rest of the nations, this is what a kingdom of this world looks like. You've got a king who gathers wealth to himself, servants to himself, engages in this sort of pageantry uh, in glorifying himself, and glorifying the kingdom that he governs and rules over. Another example that uh, we might think of of this sort of pageantry in an earthly kingdom comes from the book of Esther. Uh, if we consider uh, how the, the, the book of Esther starts in Esther chapter 1. <clears throat> now it came to pass in the days of Asher, Azahurus, this was the Azahurus who reigned over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. In those days, when King Azahurus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was in Shushan, the citadel, that in the third year of his reign he made a feast for all his officials and servants, the powers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being before him, when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the splendor of his excellent majesty, for many days, 180 days in all. 180 day celebration of his wealth, his majesty, the splendor of his kingdom. 
And when these days were completed, the king made a feast lasting seven days for all the people who were present in Shushan, the citadel, from great to small, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white and blue linen curtains fastened with cords of fine linen and purple on silver rods and marble pillars. And the couches were of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of alabaster turquoise and white and black marble. And they served drinks and golden vessels, each vessel being different from the other with royal wine in abundance according to the generosity of the king. So you can see what a, a, a kingdom of this world does. And when we think about even our own king, our own kingdom here, the nation of America, the United States of America, we don't have a king, we have a president, but still they collect taxes and they spend this money sometimes in ways that we would think are frivolous. Uh, and they spend them on pageantry, on show, uh, shows of force, shows of glory and might. And so this happens. You think about uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 3, who sets up a 90-foot-tall golden image. Uh, he's doing the same thing. He's, he's glorying in his own wealth and might. The kingdom of heaven, however, uh, is different. Uh, when Christ comes, he doesn't come with that sort of fanfare. He doesn't come with that sort of worldly glory. In Luke chapter 17, verse 20, it says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. So it's not an outward show of pomp uh, when Christ arrived on earth to begin uh, planting the seed of the kingdom, but rather it was a, became in a small way, as we saw in the parables, inner transformation in the life of believers. John Calvin comments on this verse, Luke seventeen twenty, and says, the word observation is here employed by Christ to denote extraordinary splendor. So he's saying that the kingdom of heaven did not come with extraordinary splendor. You can't see it because there's no royal pageantry. And he declares that the kingdom of God will not make its appearance at a distance or attended by pompous display. Right? That's not how the kingdom came. How did it come? Jesus was born in poverty, in a manger. He was laid in a manger as an infant. He wasn't born into a wealthy family. When Joseph and Mary go to Jerusalem to offer uh, the, the sacrifices after the birth of a child, they offer the one that, that the Old Testament law dictates for an impoverished family, not a wealthy family. Uh, Christ did not come uh, with pageantry and earthly glory. Paul, writing to the church in Philippians, tells us that when Christ came, uh, he says, that he was found in, the, in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the kingdom of God came when Christ came to this earth with humility, not with a show of wealth and extravagance. Uh, and so as the king goes, so goes the kingdom, right? So as we are citizens of the kingdom here on earth now, uh, the kingdom is not, attained, is not attended by pageantry and wealth and show. It's attended by humility. Uh, it's attended by uh, not caring for the things of this world, not getting caught up in the splendor of this world, but instead looking toward heaven. Now, that's not all that can be said 
about the kingdom of heaven, though, because the kingdom of heaven came in this way. But remember that Christ told us that it came uh, in a small way at the beginning, but that it would grow over time, and that eventually, when Christ returns to establish the kingdom forever, that it will come in a magnificent way. It will come in a way that will outshine the kingdoms of this world. In Revelation 21, verse 10, uh, John is having a vision, uh, and an angel comes, and he says, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So here is the kingdom of heaven descending uh, down to the new earth, the two being joined together. He says it has the glory of God, and he goes on to describe it with the precious stones and crystal and gold and, and all of these fabulous things. In verses 23 through 27, he says this, The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. The kings of the earth shall bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So when Christ returns to establish uh, the consummate the kingdom in its fullness, uh, it will outshine any kingdom of this world. But here and now for us and how we live as citizens of the kingdom, uh, it has come in a small way and it works internally outward. Uh, particular Baptist pastor in the 17th century, Abraham Booth, uh, wrote this about the kingdom. He says, The Christian church is dignified and adorned by being the depository of divine truth in its unadulterated state, and by practicing divine appointments in their primitive purity, by possessing the beauties of holiness, and by enjoying the presence of God. Now he's writing that in the context of the 17th century Reformation in England, and he is writing against the pomp and the circumstance of the Roman Catholic Church and the Church of England. And he's saying the true Church of God doesn't seek those things. Instead, it seeks the beauty of holiness and the true presence of God uh, in performing the duties of the church to worship and perform uh, what he calls here the divine appointments. He's talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. So those uh, who are looking for those splendor and and glory here on earth won't find it uh, in the the church that is actually seeking uh, to be representative of the kingdom. And, you know, as I thought about this, I have a lot of friends that I grew up with and went to church with that are near about my age who have left evangelical churches have left Baptist churches that we grew up in and have either deconstructed their faith and walked away from the faith altogether or, interestingly, have wound up in one of two places, either the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Anglican Church. And as I thought about it, I thought about this idea. Uh, and I think that what happened was is that growing up in being in evangelical churches that were somewhat shallow in their worship and in their doctrine and theology, as people begin to to see the shallowness of that and to feel it and look for something deeper and richer, uh, they're looking for something that's rooted historically 
uh, rooted in tradition and they're drawn to Anglican communion or to Eastern Orthodoxy because they have that historical root, but they also have that pomp and circumstance. I don't know if you've ever heard anybody refer to an Eastern Orthodox church as smells and bells because they burn incense and ring the bells and they, they have the outward uh, trappings of religion and that can be attractive to someone who is looking for something that they weren't finding uh, in a church that was not teaching solid doctrine but instead was only seeking to entertain people. Uh, but that is not what the kingdom looks like now. The second thing that I would draw our attention to, the difference between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world, is to the extent of the authority of those kingdoms. Uh, the kingdoms of this world uh, have limited authority. They are accountable to God. And so we see this uh, throughout the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's king of Babylon, the most powerful nation on the planet at the time. Uh, and he has this experience where he is humbled and sent out in the field to eat grass. And, and so he responds responds in Daniel chapter 4, verse 31, saying that while the word was still in the king's mouth, talking about the splendor of his own kingdom and the honor of his own majesty, while the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. They shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. So the kings of this world, the kingdoms of this world, are accountable to God. They don't rule in their own right. They don't rule uh, without oversight and accountability. The Most High rules, and they are held accountable to him. And we can see this even if we just continued through the Old Testament from there and looked at the minor prophets, and we think, oh, the prophets are God's prophets speaking God's word to God's people, right? Well, yes, to a large extent, but in Joel chapter 3, it says this, For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. All nations, God will judge them. They are accountable to God. And in the book of Amos, we find the prophet uh, speaking for, for the Lord multiple times to different nations. Uh, in Amos chapter 1, verse 3, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. But then in verse 6, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. In verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment. And he continues on to pronounce judgment against all these nations, including Edom uh, and Egypt. Uh, and, and so God judges the nations. They are accountable to him. In Romans chapter 13, which is a passage that we've looked at quite a lot in this study as we've considered the kingdoms of this world. Romans chapter 13, Paul writing to believers in the city of Rome, so we think about the kingdom, uh, the Roman Empire, and here we have Christians who live in the capital city, in the city of Rome, and Paul writes to them and says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. He's talking about uh, the governing authorities of the Roman Empire. 
For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. So the Roman emperor, the Roman governors, the magistrates, the, the praetorium, the, the Roman soldiers, they, they have authority because God has granted it to them, and so they are accountable to him. In verse 4, he actually says that the, the civil magistrate, he says, for he is God's minister to you for good, but if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, or diakonos, so he is God's deacon and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So the civil magistrate has been called God's deacon of wrath. They're accountable to God. They will answer to him, ultimately. They are established by God, and they are accountable to him. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, Paul writes and says this, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. All of us will stand before God we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive judgment for the things that we have done. And this includes the rulers of the kingdoms of this world. They will stand before Christ. By contrast, the kingdom of heaven is ruled directly by God. The kingdoms of this earth are accountable to God, but the kingdom of heaven is ruled directly by God. Uh, He is accountable to no one, for he is God. Uh, Who could he be accountable to? In the Psalms, we see many instances of of this recognized by the psalmist. In Psalm chapter 11, verse 4, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. God's throne is in heaven. There is no throne higher than his to which he could be held accountable. In Psalm 103, verse 19, The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. God rules, his kingdom extends and rules over all. All other kingdoms are accountable to him. He is not accountable to them. In Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission, what does Christ say at the beginning of that? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. There's no authority that doesn't belong to Christ in his kingdom. And so we can recognize that we serve the high king of heaven who will hold all men accountable, including rulers of kingdoms in this world uh, on that last day, which means two things for us, I believe. One, we should be concerned about how we will give an account to our king of the things that we have done in his service. And second, we can rest assured knowing that justice will be done eternally. Eternal justice will be served. Kingdoms of this world who act out of lines, who try and seize authority doesn't belong to them, who do not punish evil and reward good, but instead punish good and reward evil, they will be accountable to God, and he will call them to account on the last day. The third thing that we can notice that, that is a contrast between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of heaven is the nature of the laws of the respective kingdoms. The kingdoms of this world, their laws are made by men, and therefore they are unjust at times. 
They are partial to certain people groups. They are ineffective at times. In Psalm 82, verse 2, God asks the mighty men of the earth, the rulers of this age, he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? So he's addressing kings of this earth, and they're, they're judging unjustly. They're showing partiality. In Colossians 2, 23, Paul reminds us, uh, he's speaking of religious here, but religious practices that have no value uh, outward practices of religion have no value for stopping and uh, controlling the desires of our flesh, the sinful desires of our flesh. Well, if, if outward shows of religion have no value for that, how much less value would the laws of the kingdoms of this world have for actually sanctifying us, uh, for actually changing our hearts? They can't. Their laws do not extend uh, to that. But the kingdom of heaven... The laws of the kingdom of heaven are divine laws instituted by God himself. And so therefore they are just and good and perfect and right in every way. In Romans chapter 2 verse 11, Paul says that there is no partiality with God. So while God told the kings of this earth that they were judging unjustly and showing wicked partiality, there is no partiality with God. Nobody gets off the hook because they're wealthy or rich or connected in some way. God will hold all men accountable. You are either in Christ or you are in Adam and under the law and accountable to God. In Genesis 18.25, remember Uh, God was going down to Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it and has a conversation with Adam or with Abraham. And Abraham is asking God, well, will you destroy it if there are 50 righteous men or or 40 or 10? He works his way down and he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And he knows that God will. He is the judge of all the earth and he will do what is right because his laws are perfect and just. But more than being Uh, just perfect and just and not partial, God's laws extend uh, in ways that the laws of the kingdoms of this world can't. Psalm 19, a passage I'm sure you're all familiar with, speaks of the law of God and says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. When was the last time a statute of a kingdom of this world rejoice your heart the statutes of the lord are right they rejoice the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the lord is clean enduring forever the judgments of the lord are true and righteous altogether more to be desired are they than gold yea than much fine gold sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb moreover by them your servant is warned and in keeping them there is great reward The laws of the kingdoms of this earth, this cannot be said about them. They do not delight the heart. They do not enlighten the eyes. They are not pure. They are not true and righteous altogether. They do not convert the soul. Only the law of God can do that. The fourth antithesis between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world is considering the subjects of the kingdom, the citizens of those kingdoms. Kingdoms of this world uh, are limited in many, many ways as far as their citizenry goes. Uh, Think about 
the United States of America, the, the kingdom of the world in which we are citizens and live. It includes, what, 300 million plus people? But it doesn't include a billion. It doesn't include the multiple billions that live on earth. The citizenry of the United States of America is limited to those who live within the boundaries of the United States. The the laws of the United States governing those citizens is limited to merely external behavior. It cannot govern the heart. It cannot govern the thoughts. It cannot govern the conscience. And, And it cannot govern all of humanity. It can only govern those citizens which would reside within its borders. But the kingdom of heaven uh, is much greater than that. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, this is a passage we've looked at before. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and the church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven. The kingdom of heaven contains an innumerable number of angels, of elect angels. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, we're told of the multitude that was gathered there in heaven. It says, And after these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. So, the kingdom of heaven contains an innumerable uh, multitude of believers. Again, Abraham Booth in his essay on the kingdom of God, which I've quoted before, he said this, he said, It must be considered as consisting of those persons whom he bought with his blood, whom he calls by his grace, and over whom he reigns as a spiritual monarch. So the kingdom of heaven includes all those who have trusted in Christ, in the promise of Christ, even going back into the Old Testament, Adam and Eve and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, all those saints in the Old Testament who trusted the promises, every believer that has lived since Christ walked on this earth. As C.S. Lewis describes it, the church is terrible as an army with banners spread out throughout time and space. Particular Baptists in the English Revolution and the English Reformation objected to uh, the Church of England. They also objected to the, the Church of Scotland. They objected to any state church. And, and so we have the, the Baptists who came to the United States to thank for the separation of church and state and for the freedom for us to worship as Baptists rather than having to attend some state church that might be Presbyterian or Anglican or whatever. They objected to that on the grounds that having a state church was confusing and co-mixing the kingdoms of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven with the state or the kingdom uh, in which they resided. A state church would include everybody who lived within uh, the bounds of that nation as members of the church. They would pay taxes that might go to the church. They would be uh, baptized. And so, you know, we, we see that happening a little bit in New England. Uh, and this is the reason Jonathan Edwards had such a difficult time. That halfway covenant had to do with the fact that all the citizens of the town were baptized in the church because they were citizens of the town. So the Baptists objected to that idea because there is a distinction between those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven versus those who are citizens of this world. The fifth uh, 
distinction that we would make is the method of enforcing laws and the method of bringing people into a kingdom. In kingdoms of this world, as we've already looked at in the book of Romans, they bear the sword. Paul says that they are God's ministers, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And he says he does not bear the sword in vain. So kingdoms of this world use physical coercion to enforce their laws, to punish wrongdoers, those who break their laws. And even throughout history, we've seen kingdoms of this world using physical coercion to conquer other people groups and make them citizens of their kingdom. And so you think about the Roman Empire as it conquered the known world. It, by force, it made people under the authority of the Roman Empire. The kingdom of heaven, however, does not work that way. The kingdom of heaven works quite differently. In John chapter 16, in verse 8, Jesus is speaking about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and he says, And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. The method for bringing new citizens into the kingdom of heaven is not at the point of a sword or the end of a gun barrel, but rather is by conviction in the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit of God, convicting them of their sin and bringing them to repentance and salvation. Jesus specifically in John 18 says that they are not to use the sword. In John 18 verse 11, when when Christ was being arrested, Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? And then he later tells Pilate in the verse we've read previously that if his kingdom had been of this world, his followers would have used the sword. They would have fought back to defend him. But that's not what his kingdom is like. That does not use the sword to coerce people into being citizens of the kingdom. Rather, the spirit convicts people in their conscience brings them to repentance, and ultimately grants them new life. And Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The only entrance into the kingdom of God is by being born again by the Spirit of God. Uh, You don't enter the kingdom of God with a, a sword held to your back. That's not how it works. Again, Quoting from Abraham Booth's uh, book that he wrote on the kingdom, he says this, Evangelical truth and spiritual gifts, laborious preaching and ardent prayer, fortitude, patience, and a holy example, such were the militia and such the armor employed by our divine Savior. So he's saying that Christ didn't establish the kingdom uh, with swords and, and shields and an army Uh, of this earth, but rather he did it with truth, with spiritual gifts. Uh, When he says laborious preaching, I don't think he means preaching that is a a labor to listen to. I think he means that it is continuous preaching, that that Christ himself labored in preaching and that his followers labor to preach and to pray. Uh, And so that is how the kingdom expands and grows and new citizens are brought in. 
The sixth way that we would distinguish between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this world would be in the manner in which the citizens of the kingdom relate to the rulers of the kingdom. In the kingdoms of this world, our relationship to the ruler of the kingdom is limited. Uh, Some of us may never meet the ruler of the kingdom that we live in. How many of us have ever met a president? Three, four. Did did you meet a president while he was president? You did. I met a president after he had been president. Okay. So you were close. But but the point is, like we, most of the citizens of the United States don't know the president, right? They're not on a first name basis with the president. Uh, We don't. We're not close to him. We don't have access to him on a regular basis. But The kingdom of heaven is not like that. In the kingdom of heaven, we have unlimited access to the king. Every citizen of the kingdom has unlimited, constant access to the king. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, it says this. It says, let us, speaking of Christ as our high priest in heaven, it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can come boldly before the king's throne because Christ is there interceding for us as our high priest. In Hebrews chapter 10, and he's quoting here from Jeremiah, but he quotes this passage from Jeremiah. We looked at this in one of the first weeks, I believe, that we covered uh, the kingdom of heaven. But he says in Hebrews chapter 10, I'm in the wrong chapter. Hebrews chapter 8, I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 8, he says in verse 11, None of them shall teach his neighbor, this is in the kingdom, and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. Every citizen of the kingdom knows the king. If you don't know the king, you're not a citizen of the kingdom. That's how it works in the kingdom of heaven. That's not how it works in the United States of America. You can be a citizen and not know the president. But the kingdom of heaven, you must know the king in order to be a citizen. We're told in several places in the New Testament that we are to pray to God, Abba, Father, in an intimate way. He has adopted us as his sons and daughters. We don't have that kind of a relationship with the ruler of a kingdom of this world. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, He says this, he says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now this is a distinction not just between the kingdom of heaven and kingdoms of this world, but a distinction between the kingdom of heaven administered by the new covenant versus the Jewish kingdom under the old covenant. Because in context here, he's talking about Moses. And in verse 13, he says, unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. Moses had gone out and met with the Lord and the Lord's glory was reflecting off of Moses' face and he had to cover his face with a veil. But we, with unveiled face, 
beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Well, how, how is that happening? Well, if you keep reading in context, you end up in chapter 4, verse 6, and he says, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses' face was veiled as he reflected the glory of God, but we have a direct relationship with Christ, no veil between us. He is our Lord and Master and our King. The glory of God shines through him, but there is no veil between us and him. And by gazing on his glory, we are transformed into his image. That is not true of the kingdoms of this earth. And so we should make liberal and abundant use of such magnificent privileges that we have access to the king directly anytime we want. The seventh distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of this earth is the extent of their borders. The kingdoms of this world are limited geographically. Uh, in Deuteronomy 32.8, it says that God sets the boundaries for the nations and the peoples. Uh, he's actually talking about uh, what happened at the Tower of Babel when God divided the people from one another and he set their boundaries and where they would live. He says the same thing in Acts 17.26 that Every individual, God has determined where they will live, what the boundaries of their dwelling place are. And if we think about the great kingdoms of this world, Babylon, Persia, Rome, they all had geographic limits. Even when we might say, well, the Roman Empire conquered the world, they didn't really conquer the entire world, I'm sure. There were tribes, there were people living outside the boundaries of the Roman Empire. And even if we... Uh, considered the idea of a one-world government happening. Its boundaries would still be limited to this world. Its boundaries would not extend to the heavens. And yet, in the kingdom of heaven, there are no boundaries. God's kingdom extends from sea to sea, we're told, in Psalm 72. Psalm 72, beginning in verse 8. It says, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. Yes, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. God's kingdom knows no geographical boundaries. His throne is in heaven. Uh, he sits enthroned in heaven. The earth is his footstool. He rules over all. Uh, and again, in the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. No king of this world can claim such a thing. And in Philippians chapter 2, we have this astonishing statement concerning the extent of Christ's authority and power. We are told that in verse 9, Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The living and the dead. That's what it means by those who are under the earth, the dead. The living and the dead in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth are subject to the authority of Christ. Our king has no boundaries he cannot cross. 
You think about the United States. If we have a, a citizen that's in a foreign country who is in trouble of some sort, we, we begin negotiations. Maybe we try and think about can we breach their sovereign borders to go rescue our people. Christ has no such concerns. There are no boundaries outside of which his authority is not exerted. And, and the, finally, the, the last antithesis between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdoms of earth is their extent in time. The kingdoms of this world are provisional. They will not last into eternity. In Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision there uh, of a statue, if you might remember, gold and silver and iron and clay. And it says that a stone that is cut without hands crushes it and that it is blown away with the wind like the chaff. That's what the kingdoms of this world are like. That, that vision was about kingdoms, of the great kingdoms of this world. And they are like chaff before the stone who is Christ. The reason for this is, is that when the kingdom is established, consummated in its fullness, as we read in Revelation earlier, there will be no unclean things in it, so there will be no more need for the governments of this world. They exist, according to Romans 14, to punish wrongdoers. There will be no wrongdoers in the eternal kingdom, therefore there will be no need for such kingdoms of this earth. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14, we are told that the patriarchs knew that they, they did not have an enduring or a lasting city here on earth, and that's why they were looking for the heavenly city. And in Isaiah 40, it, it again refers to the kingdoms of this earth as stubble and chaff, which are blown away in the end. But the kingdom of heaven is everlasting. It lasts forever and ever and I'll read a few verses for us to that end from the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, after Nebuchadnezzar comes to his senses, after he has spent seven years eating as a beast in the field, it says, At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? God's kingdom is from generation to generation. It is everlasting because he is everlasting. Again, in that vision he had in chapter 2 of the, the statue that represented various kingdoms of this earth, that the kingdom made without hands, which was Christ, crushed and destroyed those. And it was said that this kingdom that would be established by the God of heaven would endure forever. It says in verse 40, chapter 2, verse 44, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that knows no ends. It's interesting, even in the book of Daniel, in the Old Testament, when you, there are more verses we could read that reference the same thing, but in Daniel chapter 12, Daniel is told to, to close up the prophecy. And at the end here, he is told this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. 
So even in the Old Testament, there's a promise here of everlasting life for the citizens of the everlasting kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom. The king is from everlasting to everlasting. And the citizens who behold his face are transformed into his image and are granted everlasting life with him in the kingdom. The, the great and everlasting kingdom of our Lord is completely unlike the kingdoms of this earth. We are citizens of an everlasting kingdom. We are princes who will reign with him eternally, uh, according to Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5. We'll have access to the tree of life, and we will enjoy the light of his presence forever and ever. Let's pray.